The first reading this evening is from Isaiah chapter 35. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like a crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendor of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendor of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance. With divine retribution, he will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. The burning sand will become a pool, the thirsty ground bubbling springs. In the haunts where jackals once lay, grass and reeds and papyrus will grow. And a highway will be there. It will be called the way of holiness. The unclean will not journey on it, for it will be for those who walk in the way. Wicked fools will not go about on it. No lion will be there, nor will any ferocious beast get up on it. They will not be found there, but only the redeemed will walk there, and the ransomed of the Lord will return. They will enter Zion with singing. Everlasting joy will be there, will crown their heads. Gladness and joy will overtake them, and sorrow and sighing will flee away. This is God's word. Matthew 11, verses 1 to 15. After Jesus had finished instructing his twelve disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one who was to come, or should we expect someone else? Jesus replied, Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, and the good news is preached to the poor. Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. As John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go out into the desert to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No. Those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is the one about whom it is written. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. I tell you the truth. Among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing, and forceful men lay hold of it, for all the prophets and the law prophesied until John. And if you are willing to accept it, he is the Elijah who was to come. He who has ears, let him hear. This is God's word. Aaron, thank you. Let me uh, add my welcome. My name is uh, Matt Fuller, minister here. Great to see you. I uh, hope you had a good weekend, those who were uh, away, uh, a good time. 
with one another. Uh, just, I, just, um, Tom's very helpful interview. It's helpful with the uh, honesty. Great to know that um, it's not the time we spend with the Lord that makes us right with him. We're not justified by our, our devotions. Uh, that is, of course, true. Yeah, I mean, I was just struck in the song we sung uh, just now, uh, the final verse there. Now to him, all that I am, adore him. We'll just never do that unless we spend time with him. It's just the reality. We will never adore Jesus Christ unless we spend time with him. We'll never see him for who he is. We'll never cherish him for who he is unless we spend time with him. So we're not saved by the time we spend in the morning praying and uh, reading our Bibles. But if we don't do it, we'll never appreciate him as he wants us to. We'll never love him as we're meant to. So um, however bad we are, and we're all bad to some degrees, share with someone else and agree to be better. Because we're missing out. Otherwise, we're missing out on cherishing Jesus Christ as we should. Let's pray that uh, we do that right now. Our loving Heavenly Father, thank you that uh, the Christian life is one of uh, joy in knowing Jesus Christ. And so as we come to study your word now, we don't merely want to hear words, but we want to hear with faith. We need your spirit to come and uh, give us ears that hear truly, eyes that see him clearly. Please would he, your spirit, be at work amongst us doing that now, we pray, so that we love him, we cherish him, we are willing to give all that we are and that we have before him for the honor of his name. Amen. Now, I've been wondering most of this week how to, uh, how to tell this or explain this, because I have to be honest and say that actually there's, uh, there's a bit of a scandal in our church. And it's been going on for a little bit of time. And I, I fear there may be some here tonight who will hear of it and not want to come again, actually. Now, if, if you've been part of the church family for some time, don't, don't panic. Uh, you have been aware of this for quite some time. Because the scandal, and Jesus speaks of it explicitly tonight, the scandal is... You need a savior to die for you. That's it. So it's not a scandal unique to our church. It's not a scandal unique to any church that takes the Bible and Jesus Christ seriously. It's the scandal at the center of Jesus' life that you need a savior to die for you. It comes up uh, in our passage tonight in verse 6, which really is, is the center of what we're going to look at tonight. Jesus said, Blessed is the man who does not fall away on account of me. Uh, the verb there, fall away, it's scandalizo in Greek, which translated means scandalized. It's quite easy, that one. Even uh, my limited Greek remembers that. Blessed is the man who is not scandalized by me, does not fall away, or as it's normally translated in the New Testament, stumble. Blessed is the man who doesn't stumble over me and drift away, fall away. Because, says Jesus, I am a scandal. And actually, the reason I came is scandalous. 
No, it's a completely overused word, of course, particularly in the, uh, the red tops, the black tops, and even, even the broadsheets of the nation. Scandal, scandal, scandal. There's a scandal. What is it? Oh, it's tiny, really. But scandal in the sense of Jesus saying, this is outrageous. Actually, I am outrageous, says Jesus. It, if you don't see that, you're not really seeing him. If you become accustomed to him, you, you've forgotten something of his work and character. He said, that I am scandalous. But blessed is the one who isn't scandalized by me, who doesn't stumble because of me. Blessed is that man. Well, uh, we've been looking over the last few weeks at this little section of Matthew's Gospel, 8 to 10, which is really then about the arrival of the king. Jesus Christ arrives and he gets to work. Uh, and all sorts of extraordinary things happen in encounters with him. Uh, chapter 11, this week, next week, is really how do you respond? Uh, uh, Matthew gives us a number of different responses, how people respond to the arrival of the king. And uh, first of all, we get John the Baptist. And he's an interesting case, because essentially, as we'll look at He's lost confidence in Jesus. He, he was a great, a great zealot when Jesus first appeared on the scene. But now he's got a few questions. Uh, he's not as certain as once he was. Doubt is creeping in a little bit. He is stumbling a little bit over Jesus. So I'm delighted, actually, that Matthew chose to record this little correspondence uh, between the two of them, because it's profoundly helpful if one, you're just stumbling a little bit as a Christian, maybe to Christian years, decades, but at the moment it's just, it's just hard, and you're tripping a little bit in the Christian life. Or, and then particularly helpful also for those who, who wouldn't yet call themselves Christians, still on the outside looking in. Uh, but there's just one or two things. I, yes, okay, I'm interested, but I can't quite get over that about Jesus Christ. Well, he says, yeah, I'm a stumbling block. That's what I am. People stumble over me. I'm a scandal. But, but, and we'll look at the but. Blessed is the one who does not stumble uh, because of Jesus. Uh, we'll break it down this way. We'll look at John's doubts. Uh, they come from disappointments. Uh, we'll look at Jesus' response. He says, well, oh. You've got me a little bit wrong. My mission is to save the poor. And then we'll look at John's greatness. So slightly different from what you may have on your sheets. First then, John's doubts, well, they come from disappointment. John has got doubts, and they come from disappointment. Flick back with me just a couple of pages, just to chapter 3 of Matthew's Gospel, just to remind ourselves who John is, uh, what he's been doing. Uh, page 967, just don't normally do this, but just flick back. I think it's helpful. Fairly easy to find. Uh, when John arrives on the scene and meets Jesus. So this is the, the first encounter. It may be familiar to you, but uh, Matthew chapter 3. Let me read quickly verse 11 down. John's speaking to a, a vast crowd of people who've gone out to see him in the desert. He says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but after me will come one who is more powerful than I, whose sandals I'm not fit to carry. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand. He will clear his threshing floor, gathering his wheat into the barn and burning up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. John tried to deter him, saying, no, I need to be baptized by you. Did you, you come to me? Jesus replied, let it be so now. It's proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. And 
John consented. Okay, so there's John. He'd spent all of his adult life in the desert, in the wilderness, which is odd. Not a great career choice, you'd have thought. But he's done it, and he's gone out there to gather a crowd to him to say, the, the Messiah's coming. He's coming. He's almost here. You need, to, you need to get ready for him. Get ready, because when he comes, he's going to winnow, which, as all farmers know, like most of us, you know, winnowing is, uh, you know, you get the grain which has been harvested, throw it in the air, and uh, the chaff, the light stuff that you don't really want, hopefully bl- flies off in the breeze, and you're left with just the grain. So he's going to winnow. He's going to divide the good and the bad. And uh, the wicked is going to burn up, and the righteous he's going to save. Hurrah. That one's coming. And Jesus appears on the scene. He says, there he is. That's the one. Here is the one. I mean, it's most explicit in John's gospel. Behold, the Lamb of God will take away the sin of the world. It's the one. It's the Messiah. It's the one I've been talking about for all these years in the desert. He's come. Okay, that's John. That's what he's been doing. Now, how do we find him in um, uh, chapter 11, verse 2? When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples to ask him, Are you the one? Are you? Are you the one who was to come, or, or should we expect someone else? Look, Jesus, when you arrived on the scene, I was wildly excited. I thought, this is it. Everything's going to go now. But you know what? I'm, I'm, um, I've got a few doubts now. Can I ask you one or two questions? Because I'm not, I'm stumbling a little bit here, Jesus. Are you the one? Should, should I be giving everything that I have to you? I, I'm not sure. I started, you know, you know how keen I was, but now... I'm losing confidence here, Jesus. Can, can you help me? What's going on? Now, why is John doubting? What's gone on here? Well, a couple of things. A couple of things. And maybe these will resonate with some here. Started the Christian life with great joy, excitement, but two, ten, forty, maybe not years on, just not quite as excited, not quite as confident that he's worth giving everything for, that he's the one. Not quite as excited now. Anyway, John gives us, I think, a couple of, sorry, Matthew gives us a a couple of pointers why John is so disappointed or doubting. They're the trials of life and the actions of Jesus. Let's look at them briefly. So firstly, the trials of life. Verse 2, John is in prison. Ah. (laughs) Now remember back in um, chapter 3, he said, oh, when, when the one comes, when he comes, he's going to winnow. He's going to divide the wicked from the righteous. The problem is here John finds himself in prison, imprisoned by the wicked, King Herod. He said to Herod, look, you're having an adulterous affair. You shouldn't do that. Herod didn't like it. Threw him in prison. So he says, Jesus, are you the one? Because if I'm honest, I was telling everyone that when you came, you'd sort this world out. You'd judge it rightly. Separate the wicked from the righteous. Punish them. Bless them. But you've come, and I'm in prison. Jesus, can I be blunt with you? Are you the one because my life sucks right now? And I I didn't think it was meant to be like this. My life is awful. I'm in prison. Are you the one? Should I keep trusting in you? Because my life... It's disappointing right now. Just the trials of life, it seems to be one of those things that has uh, ground him down here. 
Now, I guess there'd be some here, <laughs> there always are, who've had thoughts, Jesus, can you, can you remind me while I'm, why I'm following you? Because life isn't straightforward. My life now is, actually right now it's hard, it's disappointing. Are you, are you the one worth following, giving everything for? Are you the one? So I can think of some Christians I've known or know. Not their real names, but Mike. I think of Mike, who, who was a Christian growing up, got to his mid-twenties, saw his mother suffer in death. She had a very painful death. And said, Jesus, really? You'd, you'd allow that? I'm not sure. He stumbled over that, and actually he's given up on the faith. And now, age 40, he's, he's nowhere. Wouldn't call himself a Christian. He really stumbled. Or, uh, to a lesser degree, uh, a Colin. Uh, Colin, early 30s, uh, been married a while now, can't have children, and finds that very hard. And so asks Jesus, are you, really, are you really the one? Are you really the one worth following? No, he hasn't given up. But he'll be in church now where he goes to church. Uh, the church he's meant to be a member of. Once a month. Once every six weeks. Because it just... It just I'm not so sure, Jesus, so I'm just going to distance myself. I, I'm not taking you so seriously. I'm not giving up, but I'm stumbling a little here. And I, I don't want to take you too seriously. Or Penny, 40. And she says, Jesus, my life is disappointing, you know. And there's a cost of being a Christian. Are you the one worth following, given my life is like this? Are you the one? My life is disappointing. Are you worth following? So the trials of life seems to be one thing, certainly in John's case, that uh, holding him back. The second would be the actions of Jesus. The actions of Jesus. So verse 2, John heard in prison what Christ was doing. He'd heard what Christ was up to. And, um, okay, yes, so you're healing people and uh, you're preaching, but Jesus, where's the winnowing? That's what I was looking forward to. Um, in an old way, but that I, I wanted justice, and where's that? It's just, I don't see it, Jesus. I, I'm hearing everything you're up to, but it's just a bit disappointing. What happening to um, separating the, the wicked from the righteous and burning the wicked? What, what's gone on there? Your actions, Jesus, are a bit, bit disappointing, if I'm honest. We looked at it just a couple of weeks ago, chapter 9, verse 14. John's disciples came and asked Jesus, why aren't you fasting? Jesus, you're not... You're not fitting the mold I expected. You're not doing the right things that I wanted you to do. Your actions are, well, they're not quite right. And do you ever find that you're just slightly disappointed? Do you ever find yourself sat on the tube and um, annoyingly you're furious with yourself because you've got nothing to read? And what do you do on the tube if you've got nothing to read? You just sort of sit there and, well, I... I pretend, I pretend to be other people. Do you ever do this? Maybe this is just my... You, you think, you over there, you are a, I don't know, 50-year-old woman, and I wonder what you're doing. You're going to go to your family now and meet your husband and go for dinner, and I play out their evening. Do you, anyone do it? No, okay, fine. What do you do on the tube? What do you do? What do you do? Uh, next time you're on the tube, you've got nothing to read. Just sit there and do, what am I doing? And probably in your head you'll be going... La, 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 la. At least, at least I'm thinking. Okay, but anyway. But you ever find yourself, you're on the tube, and 
you look up and down the carriage and think, why aren't more of you Christians? Jesus, why haven't you had more of an impact here? Jesus, could you just do something big and obvious? What? It's just a little bit disappointing at the moment what your activity looks like. That's John's question. Are you the one? I've heard what you're doing and it's not really what I was after. So you see essentially what he says here. Jesus, are you the one? Because my life's disappointing and in a different way your life is disappointing. So are you the one? I'm going through trials and you're not quite doing what I asked or expected of you. Are you the one really? Lots of doubts. No. This may just be me, but do you not find it enormously encouraging that it's John having these doubts? It's John. Do you remember, even before he's born, Elizabeth, his mum, has got John in, in uh, her tummy, uh, and uh, Mary's got Jesus, and they meet one another, and they sort of high-five in their tummies. Do you remember that? John does a, John leaps in the womb because he says, it's Jesus, woo And uh, before he's born, he's a, he's a Jesus cheerleader. And um, he spends all his adult life in the wilderness saying, he's coming, he's coming, he's coming. I mean, he's an absolute, he's much more passionate than you and I are. And yet he comes to a point in his life where he says, you know, I'm struggling now. I'm just, I'm not so sure, Jesus. Are you, are you really the one I should give all my life for? I, I don't know. So John's doubts, they come from his disappointments. Jesus' response, well, he says, essentially, Jesus' mission was to save the poor. Jesus' response then, uh, two elements to it, I think, really. Recognize my mission, accept your poor. That's really what he says. Uh, let's look down at Jesus' uh, response. I think at first glance, it makes absolutely no sense. Jesus replied, verse 4, go back and report to John what you hear and see. Now, to my money, that makes no sense. So verse 2. John, Jesus, I've heard what you're doing, and I've got doubts. Jesus' answer, listen to what I'm doing. No, that, no, that's the problem. Jesus, I've read the newspapers about your activity, and it's really unsettled me. Oh, well, read the newspapers about my activity. No, that, what? No, that's my problem, Jesus, what you're doing. It makes, do you see that? It makes no sense as a reply until you realize Jesus isn't, randomly talking about stuff he's doing. He's saying, John, I am doing Isaiah 35 miracles. I'm engaged in Isaiah 35 activity. Do you remember? We, it was read in Isaiah 35, and it appears here. So verse 5, listen to what's going on, John. The blind receive sight, the lame walk, those who have leprosy are cured, the deaf hear, the dead are raised, good news is preached to the poor. John should be thinking, I, I, I've read that somewhere. I've read that somewhere in Isaiah. It's such a big book, I can't quite always remember the details. But, uh, you know, it's Isaiah 35. It's, that's what's going on. Let me read you just a, a few verses again from uh, Isaiah 35, verse uh, 3 to 4, maybe. Um, where Isaiah says, strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong, do not fear, your God will come. He'll come with vengeance. He'll come with divine retribution. He'll come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped, the lame leap like deer, the mute tongue shout for joy. That's what I'm about, John. 
I've come to, yes, I've come for vengeance. Yes, that's true. I've come to bring justice, but I've come to save as well. I'm here to be an Isaiah 35 Messiah. So Jesus is he's hinting here, look, what I've come is not quite as you've expected, because actually what I'm doing is I've come to take vengeance in order to save. John, you're being just a little simplistic. You're not recognizing my mission. Recognize my mission, which is I've come to take vengeance in order to save. See, you're a little too black and white for you, John. You say there are two people in this world. There are the wicked and there are the righteous. Well, the truth is, John, it's not quite like that. Everyone is the wicked. Everyone falls into that camp. Everyone, if you wanted me to now winnow, everyone would be in the burned pile. But I have come to take vengeance in order to save. I have come to be burned up like chaff in order that you may be safe like good grain. You need to understand my mission, John. Because if you don't get that, well, you will be a bit confused. You need me to die for you, to be burned for you, John. I'm an Isaiah 35 Messiah. Now, who gets that? Well, verse 5, there's one group who always get that. Verse 5, the end of it, good news, that's what that is, good news is preached to the poor. So what you need to do, John, is recognize my mission. That is, I've come to save sinners. I've come to heal sickness. I've come to redeem those who are enslaved to sin. Now, the people who always get that are the poor. So you accept that you're poor. The poor always get that. Now, think about that for a moment. It's a very striking verse 5. Good news is preached to the poor. Why? Because they are not broad brush. Or they are less inclined to be scandalized by the idea that they're in desperate need and need someone to die for them. Certainly the poor of the first century. If you have nothing, the idea that you need someone to help you, well, that's, that's normal. You, there's no great surprise, no shock in that. But those who are accomplished, those who have a lot, those who have a great stake in society, the professional classes, well, they don't often need a hand. They don't need help so much. So they don't recognize the need for a savior. Now, that was acutely true in the first century. So the people who are rejecting Jesus throughout, it's the professionals, the professional clergy, the professional, um, uh, the Herodians who have a stake, financially very successful. They're rejecting Jesus left, right, and center. But those without a stake in society, yeah, it's much easier for them to accept someone who will die to save them. It's true today. Think, have you ever thought of this? In London, where the biggest church is, I don't want to make too much of a point about this, but the biggest church is in East London, North London of first and second generation um, immigrants into the UK. Those are the mega churches in England. Those are the 10, 20,000 sort of churches. Nothing else comes anywhere near it. Those are, why? Is it because um, uh, 
are these sort of people mainly represented here? Is it because professional classes, successful people, are more intelligent, uh, more sophisticated, uh, and therefore read the Bible and poo-poo it because we've moved on from that? Is that it? Well, be careful. If you hold to that, you're sounding a little bit arrogant and uh, possibly a little bit racist as well. So be careful. No, it's because those who recognize they're in deep need are very happy to say, yeah, I need help. Or to put it in an utterly trivial way, someone comes along to you, uh, someone comes up to you and says, I've bought you a present. Oh, what is it? It's, um, it's a box of breath mints. How do you feel about that? How do you feel about that? Well, I want to, that's nice. You bought me a present. Do you think I need these? Now, to accept that present happily, you've got to recognize there's a little bit of a problem with yourself. If you take enormous offense, you'll say, there's no problem with my breath. There's no problem with my breath. Get those things away from me. Um, but if you say, oh, thank you very much, and um, you know, stuff sticks in and uh, then you know, sort of neck the whole packet, then you, do you see the, if you recognize, to accept the gift, you need to recognize there's a problem. If you think there's no problem with me, you'd just be offended. Now, broad brush, on a large scale, the gospel message, Jesus comes to die in the place of sinful people, that is offensive, that is a scandal. But people who have little, the poor, that's easier to take, easier for them to accept that they, they're in need. So, yeah, that's what Jesus is he's doing here. So you, we need to accept that we're poor. Now, that is much harder for professional, successful people. Um, quite happy to have Jesus. So, quite happy to, uh, professionals, quite happy to have Jesus as um, a moral teacher. That's okay. Because, you know, professional people have lots of teachers. I don't know if you have uh, teachers. Uh, we have a, a friend, a neighbor. She is delightful. But uh, at the moment, she has a personal trainer who, as far as I can work out, takes her to um, Battersea Park and beats her up uh, <laughs> most mornings. She seems to come back slightly sick. Um, she has a life coach who, as far as I can tell, she pays to tell her to be more ambitious, which is odd. Um, she has a personal shopping assistant. Now, this is amazing to my mind. She goes to Harvey Nichols and they supply with someone who says, you should buy this and this, and this, and this, and you look good in this. Oh, and how wonderful that you need someone to tell you to buy more of their stuff. So she's quite happy with lots of, lots of life coaches, assistants, teachers in her life. And she's very happy with Jesus, the teacher, who gives a few little moral instructions. I like it when Jesus says, turn the other cheek. But when you say, what about the fact he says he comes to die for you? No, no, weird, medieval, too strong, too strong, too strong. It's just, yeah, yeah. She has so much. How do you take a little bit of advice? But to be desperately in need that someone has to die for her? Too much. Much too much. So Jesus says, John, okay, you, you're having doubts, you're disappointed. You will be if you just focus on your life at the moment and you put me into a sort of box about my expectations. But if you recognize my mission which is to come and die, to take vengeance in order to save. And you'll accept that you're poor, that spiritually you have bad breath, you need help.
spiritually, actually, you're dead and need my help. Well, do those things, and then you'll accept me joyfully. You'll be thrilled. You'll be absolutely delighted. In fact, then you'll be blessed. So if you accept those things, says Jesus, well, blessed is the man who doesn't fall away on account of me. See, John's doubts, they come from his disappointments. Jesus' answer is, well, look, listen, you've misunderstood me. My mission is good news for those who recognize they're poor. Get that right, you'll be thrilled, your doubts will go. And there's one other little thing which uh, follows up. John's greatness, well, that is in pointing to Jesus. So Jesus says, listen, you need to understand it's all about me, and even John was pointing to me. Let's look at verses 7 to 15. Here he's addressing a different sort of crowd. He turns to the crowd, but the issue remains the same. Is Jesus the one? Is he the one? And so Jesus here says, John was special, is special, or was special, because he testified to me. That's what makes him so important. In fact, verse 11, among those born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Wow. When John walked the earth, he was the greatest man that had ever lived, according to God. Wow. Why so? Let's work through it briefly. Uh, So verses 7 to 9, Jesus says, look, you knew there was something special about John, didn't you? You knew that he was more than a prophet. You didn't just go out to see a reed swayed by the wind, a sort of flip-flopping man. You didn't go out to see a a sort of king. No, you can find them in palaces. Why did you go out, verse 9? You knew he was a prophet, but he was more than a prophet. Uh Okay, in what way is Jesus more than a prophet? He's the greatest of prophets. Why? Well, because, verse 10, he's the one that promised that would testify to God. It's the quote in Malachi, verse 10. I'll send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. Jesus says, John the Baptist is the greatest man who ever lived because he's the prophet that testifies that God is coming. No one else who'd ever lived could say, Jesus is coming and there he is. The Messiah is, sorry, rather, the Messiah is coming and there he is. No one could do that before John. That's what makes him so great. That's his greatness. He could point to Jesus. Okay. Two implications of that. The first is, we're greater than John. Believers are greater than John. It's very exciting, this. So you saw it in verse 11. Among those born of women, there's not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet he who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Now, I like that. Do you not get excited about I like the sound of that. So John was the greatest man who'd ever lived up until that point in history, and I'm greater than him. Now, that's exciting. I don't know how well you know your history, but if no one else, that that must mean I'm a greater philosopher than Plato. Uh, I'm a greater writer than Virgil. I'm a greater general than Alexander the Great. I mean, this is good. Um, uh, What about biblical characters in history? I'm greater than Abraham, greater than David, greater than Solomon. I am quite wise. Um, uh, wow, is this, is it, is it, wow, why? No, no. What, in what way greater? Why was John great? He pointed to Jesus. So what does it mean to be greater than John? It means you point to Jesus with more clarity, knowledge, Because anyone this side of the cross, the very 
the frailest believer who's only just holding on to the Christian faith, they can say, look back in history to when Jesus died and rose again. John couldn't do that because he lived before the cross. So do do you see what greatness is in God's economy? Greatness is pointing to Jesus. So if you ask God, who's the greatest? He's not going to say, oh, Muhammad Ali. Um, He's not going to say, Roger Federer is the greatest tennis player. What is greatness in God's sight? Greatness is Kevin tomorrow going into work and saying, have you ever heard anything about Jesus Christ? God looks down and says, that is great. That is great. That is magnificent. I think that is unbelievably great. When it comes to reviewing greatest people in history, Kevin will be much higher than... Virgil, Alexander the Great. Do you see that? In God's thinking, greatness is Peter tomorrow who goes into work and says, timidly, I went away with the church this weekend. We learned some really interesting things. Can I tell you one thing about them? God says, that is great. That man is a great man. I love that man. That's great. That's greatness. In that way, we can be greater than John. It's very striking, isn't it? So believers are greater than John. Second thing to expect, or implication rather, expect a forceful outcome. That's really verses 12 to the end. Verse 12, very striking. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing and forceful men lay hold of it. Jesus says, when I've come on the scene, two things happen. Uh, the, the kingdom of God advances forcefully, literally violently, but it's opposed violently as well. Those, those two things always happen. So look, even in what we read in uh, Matthew 8 to 10, the kingdom of God, is, Jesus has come, and what's happened? Extraordinary things have happened. Matthew, Jesus says to Matthew, get up and give up your business and follow me, and he does. I mean, that's extraordinary. Deaf people get their hearing back. Lame people get their walking back. Dead people get their life back. I mean, some extraordinary things have happened when the kingdom comes. But he's forcefully opposed as well. And ultimately, that forceful opposition will will take him to his death. Don't be surprised that both those things happen, says Jesus, because I'm a scandal. And I divide. And some people will be outraged to the point of killing me. So don't be surprised if people don't like the message of Jesus Christ today. But also don't be surprised when the kingdom forcefully comes. Don't be surprised if that happens in someone's life and you see it in someone who's been pretty diffident and taken a long time and, you know, I'm not so sure. They become a Christian and, wow, their life just takes off and they are transformed. Don't be surprised by that either. See, when the kingdom of God comes, it comes forcefully. It's opposed forcefully, but both things happen. Don't, Don't be surprised. Don't be surprised, says Jesus because I'm scandalous. That happens. So I'm thrilled, actually, that, um, I don't know about you, I'm thrilled that um, Matthew recorded this little incident, this little conversation between John. I find it enormously reassuring that one such as John could have doubts. He's not surprised, Jesus, when people are scandalized by him. So if you find yourself asking the question, Jesus, are you the one? Do I keep going with you, Jesus? Because, yeah, I was zealous a while ago, but now 
It's not quite there anymore. Are you the one? Well, I guess he'd say, look, don't be surprised by the trials of life. But now, now look at my work. Now, what have you heard about me? Not just that I'm giving deaf their hearing, blind their sight. You've heard now, haven't you, that I've died and risen for you. So I will take you to be with me forever and eternity. So don't be upset now. Don't be disappointed now. Know what I've done. Look upon my works as you now know them. And look at where you'll be. Because my mission was good, is good news. It's great news. If you understand it, is he the one? Yes, of course he's the one. He's the one our hearts were made for. He's the one who delivers us from hell to heaven. He's the one who can save us. He's the one. Of course he's the one. We'll have doubts. We may stumble. But of course he's the one. There's no one like him. Let's pray together. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for recording this this dialogue between John and Jesus and how encouraging it is that one such as John would stumble because that is true of us. We often stumble in this life. But would you deepen our faith again that Jesus Christ is the one, he's uniquely the one who came to die and rise again to rescue us so that we won't be burnt like chaff, but we'll have an eternity gazing upon his face, enjoying him. And would that transform our doubts today, we pray. Amen.